Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And this week, I'm joined by a special guest, Joe Sudbay, who's pinch hitting for David Neer. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me, David. It's always a pleasure to join you on The Down Ballot, one of my favorite podcasts of all time. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the mini elections that take place below the presidency from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. But let's dig into today's episode. So what are we going to be covering today, Joe? Well, we're going to be talking about a major development in the Arizona Senate race. Congressman Ruben Gallego announced this week that, in fact, he is running for the Democratic nomination. Really important. That'll be a critically important race. The other thing we're going to be talking about, one of the other important races, is upcoming February 28th, 2023, for mayor of Chicago. Lori Lightfoot's running for re-election. There are several other candidates in the race. And then we're going to wrap up talking about Virginia, a topic that we thought you guys talk about a lot on this uh, podcast. And we're going to just dig into Virginia a little bit, too. And then for our interview this week, we've got Victoria McGrory, the executive director of Bold Pack from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Um, so stick with us. So despite it still being January, we've got some more big news as it comes to the 2024 Senate races where we had a big announcement in Arizona. So tell us what's going on there. Well, yeah, uh, this week we learned officially that Congressman Ruben Gallego is running for the United States Senate as a Democrat. Now, this is, of course, a really important seat. It's currently held by former Democrat, now independent, Kirsten Sinema, who has really done as much as she can to aggravate and alienate the entire electorate of Arizona. And um, Gallego has been thinking about it for a while. He's been a very proud, progressive, unabashedly, just brazen and ballsy. I just think he's terrific. And he launched this week with a video, and we've seen a lot of these campaign intro videos, and they almost become formulaic. I have to say, <laughs> I really was moved by his video this week. He did a great job, told his story growing up, uh, single mother, um, how he got to Harvard, served in, in Iraq, uh, really suffered some losses in his company. Um, was honest about the struggles he's had. I just found it terrific. And he, and he called out cinema. You know, one of the things he said, the rich and powerful, they don't need more advocates. And, you know, certainly if anyone has been an advocate for the rich and powerful, it's Senator Kirsten Cinema, who was in Davos last week with her good buddy, uh, Joe Manchin. So I think this is going to be really exciting. I think it does create a conundrum, David, for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. Cinema currently sits as an independent, but caucuses with the Democrats. Democrats tend to support incumbents. They support other independents like Angus King and Bernie Sanders. So it's going to be a real challenge to see how this plays out for the D.C. Democrats. We've already seen Chuck Schumer get asked who the Democrats will be supporting in 2024. And he's been able to put it off for now. And I think they'll be able to probably put it off for basically most of the year to be basically there's no reason to need to decide now to make any sort of steps right now. 
Cinema uh, hasn't actually announced that she would be running for re-election. So for right now, there isn't actually an incumbent, quite uh, you know, questionable Democratic incumbent running right now. So there's no decisions that they have to make. But obviously, eventually, this decision will will come to a head if Cinema does run for re-election. But there's going to be an enormous amount of pressure, I think, from the party writ large to support Gallego. That's where I think a lot of the outside groups are going to be. That's where I think the Democratic Party, in terms of the Arizona Democratic Party members, are going to be. They're going to be with Gallego. So as awkward as it is for Senate leadership to potentially endorse against somebody who is caucusing with them, I'm not sure if they have a lot of good choices to to try to do that. I think they're probably going to end up pushed to Gallego if Cinema does, in fact, end up running, which is no guarantee. I'll also say I, I really like Gallego's like sort of social media presence. He has like a very authentic style there, as you mentioned, like he's a veteran. So I think he really provides like a good sort of personality that you see um, in his media appearance apparent in his media appearances and such, different from maybe what people think of as like a stereotypically, you know, progressive candidate. Uh, he actually has uh, no fucks to give. And he gives a lot of fucks <laughs> on Twitter. He got called out today by the uh, Republican candidate for attorney general who lost Abe Hamaday. And Gago just smacked him back. And he's just kind of got that fearlessness. I think so many of us crave in democratic leaders. So I, I am excited about this. And, you know, I have to say, uh, cinema has been a thorn in our side for a long time. Many of us knew her back in the day when she used to be a progressive. I did videos with her when I used to write on a blog and she was, oh, wow. you know, she was a progressive champion. So she no longer is, of course, and she's very proud of that. But uh, I think it really does create a situation. Like you said, we don't even know if she's going to run again. Um, I'm sure she's planning her next gig and who knows whether it'll be in the United States Senate or not. We've talked obviously about cinema before on the podcast, but truly one of the the strangest paths. And I think ultimately the dangers of thinking you're smarter than everybody else in the room is my sort of one sentence summary of of what happened to Kirsten Cinema. But you know, there's nothing to do now but make sure that you know, a real Democrat is the next senator from Arizona. Right. And later in the show we're going to be talking to Bold Pack, uh, the which is the pack of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. He is the chair of Bullpack right now. There are currently four Latino senators in the, the United States Senate. He'd make the fifth. So uh, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm very excited about this race. Yeah. And of course, as he just announced on Monday, Bullpack hasn't endorsed him or anything yet. But I think we know what's probably going to happen there, you know, in, in an inevitable situation. Yeah. So um, what else are you looking at? Uh, David, I mean, it is it is January, but there's still a lot happening. There's always there's always something. If there's one thing you can take away from this podcast, there is always an election to cover. So coming up in just about a month is the Chicago mayor's race, where um, current incumbent mayor Lori Lightfoot is running for re-election and is facing some really tough challengers. Um, there have been a few polls that have been released recently. Um, Lightfoot herself has just released an internal that shows her in first place with 25% of the vote. Um, former Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis in second place with 22%. And he's somebody who's maybe a little bit more on the conservative side of things. And then a couple of progressive candidates um, a little bit behind with um, Representative Chuy Garcia in third place with 18%. 
and Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson um, in fifth with 9%. Those are the two seen as like the progressive candidates. And then sort of a wealthy perennial candidate, Willie Wilson, is actually in fourth between the two of them at 11%. Now that's Lightfoot's poll. We've seen a couple other polls with slightly different numbers. An internal from a lower down candidate um, showed uh, Garcia, one of the progressive candidates in first with 21%, and Lightfoot in second with 15%. Um, and then a third poll from a neutral group um, put Vallis actually in front, the sort of more conservative leaning Democrat with 26%, and Garcia beating out Johnson um, for second place with Lori Lightfoot all the way in fourth place. So it's really not clear. These polls are a little bit all over the place. We can see who some of the leading candidates are. Obviously, Lightfoot, Vallis, Garcia are all, you know, getting some strong pockets of support from different places. But it's it's really not clear who may end up taking the, the top two spots and what's almost certainly going to go to a runoff. Now, Lightfoot has, has also claimed that she wants her at this outcome that she polled with her against Vallis, which makes sense. Vallis being a more conservative-leaning Democrat, he accepted an endorsement from the Chicago Fraternal Order of Police, which is a police union in Chicago led by a prominent Trump supporter. So he's clearly, you know, angling for a more conservative-leaning vote, even though it's a very democratic city. So if Lightfoot were able to go up against him, she might be able to consolidate the progressive vote, even though progressives are largely very unhappy with Lightfoot's term in office and would much rather be able to, to vote for one of the two progressives in the runoff. I, I always find Chicago politics fascinating. When I first started out in politics a long time ago, I, I worked on the Mondale campaign and did the general election in Chicago in 1984. And if you come from Portland, Maine, and then you're in Chicago, where <laughs> politics is for real, and it was when Harold Washington was the mayor and fighting with Eddie Verdoliak, who was the Cook County Democratic chair, and Rich Daly was the state's attorney. It, 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 you couldn't make it up. It was really intense. But, um, and, you know, this mayor's race, just like you said, it's just a couple of weeks away. Lori Lightfoot got 17.5% in 2019 which launched her into the runoff with Tory Periwinkle, Tony Periwinkle, and then she became the mayor. And so not overwhelmingly popular, as you mentioned, as particularly with progressives, but it's really going to be a wild one, uh, which Chicago politics always is. David, the other um, announcement we got this week was that Tim Kaine is running for re-election. And it wasn't a big surprise uh, but, oh, my God, there was a frenzy in the media. Was he or wasn't he? And just kind of became this thing on Twitter among the political reporters. And he announced he was, which was kind of like the biggest, <laughs> kind of like the biggest no kidding story. But Virginia politics are front and center again in 2023. And it, it's just so important right now. The legislature is in session and it just shows you how important state legislative races are. We, I know you've covered the Aaron race win, which was so important a couple weeks ago in Virginia's seventh Senate district. But the Repub the Democrats own control that Senate and they are blocking Glenn Youngkin's agenda. Glenn Youngkin, who a couple weeks ago said he was humbled by the idea that his name was mentioned under consideration for running for president. It was a poll, I think, this week that showed he's at 0%, so he should be humbled by that. <laughs> but he's really being humbled by the Senate Democrats in Virginia. All 40 of them were up for election in the 
fall as are all 100 seats in the House of Delegates. And as a general rule, obviously, we don't talk about presidential politics here, but I will say that the idea of Glenn Youngkin running for president is one of the funniest things in politics today <laughs> to me, because 0% is exactly what I would expect him to get in any primary, and that's exactly what he is polling at. So I think that's par for the course there. There was some speculation that he might run against um, Tim Kaine or run against whoever the Democrat was if Kaine didn't run, which probably would have been more likely because I think Republicans at least believe they might have had a shot in 2024 if Kaine had not run. But with Kaine running for re-election, I would be shocked if Youngkin ran that sort of a long shot race when he would be a big, big underdog to Kaine. Um, there has been a mention that um, Hung Kao, who ran in the 10th district and actually did pretty respectably for a Republican in the 10th district in 2022, has made some, some noises about running. So that would certainly be a respectable candidate for Republicans against Tim Kaine, but not one that I think would put it on anybody's radar as a serious Senate race. I think also these um, midterm elections, the midterm for Youngkin, will be instructive. Um, as I mentioned, all 100 seats are up. In 2021, Republicans took control of the House of Delegates by a 52-48 margin. And two of those races were won by, one was won by 94 votes, one was won by 115 votes. So these are going to be very competitive. We know that same thing with the Senate, which Democrats currently control 22 to 18. So, and it is, you know, I, I think we all were led to believe a lot of us didn't believe it, that somehow Glenn Youngkin was going to be this different kind of Republican in a red vest. The media bought that hook, line, and sinker, and he has turned out to be every bit as incendiary as most of the MAGA extremist Republicans. And um, so, again, it's why these state-ledge races, which I know I know everyone who listens to or watches this podcast understands, but these races in Virginia, again, so important. Absolutely. And we'll definitely be covering those Virginia races in depth, both leading up to the primary in June and to the general election that's going to be taking place in November. That's about it for our weekly hits, but stick with us after the break. Victoria McGroy, the executive director of Bold Pack from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, will be joining us. Joining us today is Victoria McGrory, the executive director of Bold Pack, which is the campaign arm of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. So let's get started with explaining to our listeners what exactly Bold Pack is and how it sort of relates to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus in Congress, because, you know, nowadays there's so many PACs, there's all different kinds. So, so tell us what exactly the Bold Pack does. Yeah, um, it's a great question. Love to start out there. Um, so Bold Pack, we are the campaign arm of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Um, and CHC, um, as we're also known, is uh, made up of all the Democratic Latinos and Latinas in the House and in the Senate. So we are um, in both chambers. Um, we're very proud um, that this Congress, the 118th Congress, we have 42 members. Um, so that is actually the largest Democratic CHC in history. Um, and we're really proud of that uh, in particular because it is our job um, and our mission is to uh, ele elect those folks, right? And so uh, we spend every day thinking about how are we going to increase diversity in Congress by getting more Latinos and Latinas elected um, to the House and Senate. Thanks for that um, description, Victoria, and it's great to uh, talk with you today. Okay, so 
This past cycle, there was a ton of discussion around the Hispanic vote. It's been going on for the past couple of years. A lot of hand-wringing among Democrats and a lot of pundits making bold predictions about how Republicans were going to actually do really well with Hispanic voters. But it seemed like uh, Democrats actually ended up doing pretty well overall with Hispanics in 2022. Talk about that a little bit. You know, it's funny uh, as, a, as a campaigner, you know, obviously in the run up to an election, you know, you're just like consuming all of the news, right? And you're reading as much as you possibly can. And at some point it felt like every day I was waking up and I was reading more, you know, articles and analysis and, and seeing interviews and all of this about how Democrats were losing Latinos and, you know, the postmortems were written like way before any voters even started casting ballots. Um, and, you know, those of us who, who work on this side and who actually do the work to get our community um, engaged and voting and to make sure that we have um, that diversity and that representation. I mean, we just knew that the, the, all of that was wrong. Right. You know, we so Bullpack has been around since 2001. Um, so we're coming up here on 22 years. Um, that's a lot of time. Right. We, we work with extremely seasoned um, campaign veterans. Right. Um, folks who have been organizing their communities on the ground for, for a long time. Um, we work with lots of like minded organizations. Right. Just doing everything we can. And. You know, there are a couple things that, you know, when you're doing this work day in and day out, rolling up your sleeves, that you get to know, right? Um, one is that you've just got to pound the pavement, right? You've just got to run straight through the tape um, and, and don't get distracted by the noise. And so as we were reading all of these things, right, I mean, things that said, you know, the rise of the Latina conservative, right? And um, Democrats have a Latino problem, right? All of these types of articles and, and, and um, you know, pundit analysis, uh, we just knew we couldn't get distracted, keep our eyes on the prize, right, and just do the work. Continue mobilizing the community, continue making sure that our message was heard, continue making really, really key, large strategic investments. Um, so one thing that Bold Pack really focuses heavily on um, is making sure that we are recruiting really, really strong Latinos and Latinas across the country to, to run for, for Congress, right? And so, you know, that means finding folks that are engaged in their communities, um, diverse, right? Even from within our community, we're talking doctors, we're talking, you know, local representatives, um, veterans. Um, and then, you know, after we engage in, in a recruitment um, effort and, and they decide, yeah, we're, we're going to jump on in here, um, making sure that they're just set up for success, right? Helping them put together a really strong campaign operation um, and then making sure that they have the resources that they need to win. Um, one of the ways we do that, uh, one of the many ways we do that is we do independent expenditures. Um, and so last cycle, Bold Pack spent $6 million uh, on behalf of Latino and Latina campaigns. Um, and in doing that, that's the largest we've ever done in our history. Um, and and the, all that, that sort of investment started very early in the campaign cycle and, um, you know, went straight to things like TV ads and, and radio, right? Um, in Spanish, in English, right? Making sure we were connecting with Latino voters exactly where, where they were um, and in the way that um, is authentic to them 
right? Um, you know, a really great example is um, uh, Yadira Caraveo is um, the first Latina to represent um Colorado at the federal level. Uh, she's a pediatrician. When she decided uh, to run for office, you know, we 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 helped her um, set up a really strong campaign operation. Right, gave her lots of strategic advice and just kind of were in the weeds with her. Um, and then also um, ran a program um, of sending you know, mail to Hispanic voters in her district. Um, and now she made history, right? And she's in Congress. So that's the kind of work that we do. And, um, you know, when we when we see these these types of um, arguments, and, and especially before, you know, the election, we just knew we had to, we had to drown out the noise, we had to keep the eyes on the prize and keep running through the t- tape. And it was, it was really successful. Well, it was successful. And two of the places um, that were very successful for Democrats in 2022 that kind of fit into that, those states where the pundits were predicting doom were Arizona and Nevada. Um, You know, they're part of, let's call it the Biden coalition, both in terms of their electoral votes, but also in terms of the Senate. Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto running for re-election, the first Latina United States Senator from Nevada. And in both Nevada and Arizona, uh, Latino voters make up a huge part of the Democratic coalition, and there are a number of um, elected Latinos up, up, you know, up and down the ballot in those states. Um, talk a little bit about the outreach and the work you did uh, in, in those particular states, um, which were so vital this past cycle. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, there's no question, um, you know, with such slim margins um, in in both chambers, right, and and Democrats having. Um, defending the the majority in the Senate, um, but but nonetheless having very slim margins. I mean, every single seat matters, right? Um, and so, you know, we know that Latino voters are such a central part of the Democratic coalition nationwide, right? Nationwide, Latinos voted for Democrats two to one in the midterms. Um, and so um, Arizona and Nevada, of course, are really, really important states uh, for Democrats, for the Senate, for the White House, um, and certainly for the House as well. Um, And so, you know, one thing that we were really proud of, um, Senator Cortez Masto, she actually uh, is the first um, and sadly the only um, Latina in the Senate, um, hopefully not for too long. Um, But, you know, she made history in 2016 when she was first elected to the Senate. And so we were really excited when she came up for her reelection this past cycle to be very involved in that race. That race obviously was an incredibly close race. It was it was one of the most competitive Senate races um, on the map. And so bold pack, you know, we got involved in there as well. And so we ran radio ads across Nevada in Spanish. Her win was part of a very, very, very broad coalition of voices and organizers, right, and organizations that advocate for our community that were involved and organizing on the ground, never giving up until the very last moment, right, until those those polls closed. Um, and so Latinos are really critical part of the Democratic coalition, and in particular in those states. Both Arizona and Nevada will have Senate races this cycle as well, as well as, of course, this being a presidential election, and that's going to remain true. So, while broadly, I think 
Democrats held up pretty well with Hispanic voters in 2022. There were a couple of specific locations where Democrats have been losing ground or had a pretty bad year in some very specific places. And I want to point out, you know, South Texas and then Florida writ large, which is really obviously terrible for all Democrats of, of all you know, races and ethnicities, ages, everything. Florida was just terrible. But how do you think Democrats can do better in those areas, can reach those voters that they may be losing in these specific areas, even as they're doing pretty well nationwide? One really key lesson um, that we saw a lot coming out of the 2020 election um, and a lot of folks talking about, right, is that Latino voters are not a monolith. And so a lot of times, you know, people will talk about the Latino vote. And as if that is some sort of block that is completely homogenous and sort of has these sets of interests, right? One, two, three, and we'll just, you know, prioritize those and sort of vote accordingly. Um, the reality that we at Bold Pack know and that people organizing our community from within our community, right? Latinos organizing ourselves, um, no, is Latino voters, we are not a monolith. It is not a homogenous group across the United States. We come from many different countries. We live in different places. So a Latino who lives in rural Texas, for example, is very different from one who might live in the middle of New York City, right? There are different experiences. We have uh, obviously different ages, all, all kinds of rich diversity within our community. So what that means is Democrats and campaigns, we can't treat Latino voters as a monolith. And we need to treat Latinos as persuasion voters that need to be engaged with early, often, and in an authentic way. In South Texas, before the election, folks were writing all kinds of, you know, again, those same, those same postmortems before the election that we were going to lose, Democrats were going to lose three seats in South Texas. Um, and that just did not materialize. And not only did it not materialize, um, and, and we defended uh, our own incumbents in the, in the region, um, but, but Democrats won by, by pretty wide margins. Another thing that was really, really important, I think in both places, right, Florida and South Texas, is disinformation campaigns um, and gerrymandering that particularly targeted our community um, as well as voters of color in general. We see so much disinformation targeting Latino voters in Florida, in Southern Florida, um, in Spanish and English. And the thing that's very tricky about misinformation, especially when it targets our community and it's being led by Republicans, these campaigns, is that misinformation is treated very differently in terms of fact-checking across different digital platforms, especially when it's done in languages other than English. It's just harder, right? So in when misinformation is targeting our community in Spanish, it's a lot harder for it to be stopped. The same sort of algorithms and all of this kind of stuff that can catch things um, automatically and are really big 
integral part of stopping misinformation campaigns in English, the same fact checking does not exist on the same level in Spanish. Another really, really important thing in both of these places um, is gerrymandering, especially in Florida. We saw the process of redistricting that happened last cycle was very, very partisan in Florida. Governor DeSantis decided that he wanted to draw these maps in a particular way, and he did. And in doing so, he deliberately tried to disenfranchise voters of color. And so the resulting maps that came out of the redistricting process in Florida last cycle are just inherently not representative and tilted away from Democrats in a way that disenfranchises big groups of voters and people. Victoria, you know, just following up on, you know, uh, your recent answer about disinformation, what, and particularly with Spanish language media, and what are some of the tactics that you and your colleagues are using to counter some of that disinformation. And I say this because keeping in mind, this week we saw new reporting that there's going to be uh, an upstart media company that's basically going to be Fox News in Spanish. So this is only going to get worse. Um, What are some of the approaches you're taking to deal with it? Misinformation is not a new thing uh, for our community. It's something that's been around. And I think after the 2020 election, there has been a very big focus, uh, renewed attention on just how severe the problem is um, and how much it is targeting the Latino community. And so this is something that our members uh, felt really, really passionate about um, coming into the midterm election. Um, What can we do? What can we do as an organization that centralizes ourselves in making sure that Latino voters are just integral to the the political process, right? Um, What can we do to help this problem? One thing that we know is where is this information, this misinformation campaign? Where where is it happening? The thing that we know as, as we were thinking about this problem and trying to get a handle on it and how we were going to approach it is that misinformation campaigns are really, really, really targeting Latinos online. So Latino voters, you know, over-index and, and the Latino community in general over-indexes on YouTube. You, we use YouTube more than any other social media platform and, and get a lot of information and news from YouTube. And we were seeing that Republicans were using that platform to really target our community with misinformation. And so we took, we took sort of that, that knowledge and we said, okay, well, we need to be on YouTube as well, right? If Latinos are online, that's where, that's where Democrats need to be too. If they're on YouTube, that's where we need to be too. So we, we designed a YouTube channel that would, that was going to sort of the main audience was going to be Latino voters. Um, and we, we created this channel where our idea was, Let's do something really cutting edge, really different, where we are trying to combat these political misinformation campaigns in real time on YouTube, but in an authentic way. Because sometimes what's really difficult is translating the political 
messaging and outreach into something that relates to the way people use their phones, the way people are on social media, right? The, the funny things that we're all sort of looking at and sharing in our group chats, all of this. So this was our, this was our main pre premise. And we wanted to do it in a way that was really, really authentic, really culturally competent. So like everything we do at Bold Pack, we decided, okay, first and foremost, we need to find some really good Latino strategists out there to, to sort of come up with this. And we're going to engage influencers because influencers make great content that we all sort of, you know, uh, consume in different ways. So we're going to engage influencers and we're going to create a show that's funny and light, but that feels sort of funny and light in style, but we're going to address head on these really big issues that, that are sort of central to the election cycle that everyone's talking about these really important values and the things that Democrats are fighting for. And so we did, it was a very, very successful campaign. We ended up producing over a dozen videos. Uh, we tackled everything from the costs of gas to the economy and inflation um, to abortion, which as we know was just such a central thing that really energized voters in this midterm and, and will continue to be. And so Lindsey Graham's bill that would essentially create a nationwide abortion ban, when that came out, all of us got together you know, we hopped on the phone and we were like, we need to get at this now. Um, we did all of our videos in English and Spanish. And so, and in Spanglish, which um, is something that's, that's a really important way that Latinos communicate on a daily basis, right? It's kind of a modern mix of both languages and it's, it's, how, it's how we talk in our homes. Um, and, and it's a way that we were able to resonate with folks. And so we turned, you know, with the, with the abortion ban and, and Lindsey Graham's bill, we, we turned around a script and, and turned around a video really, really quickly, um, sort of rapid response style. Um, and it ended up being, you know, uh, our main host, talking with her cousin about this craziness and kind of giving real information. And in that, we were also directly combating some misinformation. So at the time, certain misinformation that was happening around abortion in particular and abortion rights was that if you get an abortion, your immigration status will be affected, which is completely false. Right. But that is something that folks were pushing around online in particular to target our community. So we needed to get out there very fast and say that is not true um, and say that in in in, in two languages. Um, and so we did it. Um, and so, you know, that that YouTube channel, we it was viewed by folks over 1.1 million times um, and ended up being a really, really integral part of our strategy to sort of connect with Latinos and in particular with young Latinos in, in sort of a new and different way that, you know, had, that hadn't been happening before. Um, so I want to take you back, let's say about, about eight, 10 months ago, back to the primary season of 2022 and a particularly contentious race that developed in a Democratic primary in Oregon 6th district, which was a new district that was created after reapportionment. 
where now Representative Andrea Salinas won the primary against um, an opponent in the primary who had some big Democratic super PAC help, including House Majority PAC, which is sort of the big PAC that is associated with the Democratic caucus in the House. So take us through sort of what happened there, why there was all this money on the opponent's side, you know, why Bullet PAC decided to get involved and, and how you're able to pull it off. Primary season is is a fun time. This race, it was a lot of fun. It was it was it was just crazy. Um, and Congresswoman Salinas, which it, it brings me great joy just saying that alone. But um, the Congresswoman is just uh, just wonderful. And it was it was a it was a pleasure to work with her even throughout uh, all, all of the craziness. It was it was very fun. Um, you know, this is this race is a really good example of what Bullpack is and what we do. We got involved with Oregon Six very, very early on in the election cycle. In a redistricting year, we, we got new maps. This was a brand new district that was created in redistricting. And we, we recruited Andrea to run for this seat. She was an accomplished state legislator, really, really just an amazing advocate, has been fighting for progressive causes for decades. She helped pass one of the most comprehensive and progressive reproductive rights bills in the country. And so when we found, you know, a, a candidate like that is sort of gold for Bold Pack, right? And so we recruited her, we found her, we said, you really need to run for Congress. You would be incredible. Your voice would be, is really, really needed in the halls of Congress. She decided to run. So we were super excited. So we, as soon as she sort of gave that yes and kind of jumped in, we were all in with her. We helped her set up um, a campaign team, fully Hispanic led campaign team from the campaign manager to all of the consultants and everything on the race. Bold Pack, we were her first formal endorsement um, in that race, which feels very, very long time ago, uh, but we were excited to be that, right? We sort of just got to work day in, day out, helping guide the campaign through all manner of strategic decisions that had to be made on a campaign. And then the money started flowing in. Um, and so we started seeing outside spending coming in for one of her opponents in the primary, another Democrat. And it kept coming and it kept coming and it kept coming. And in any race, outside spending is a can be really important and as we were seeing this it, it was it was strange because the candidate you know didn't really have much experience or, or or a record certainly in comparison to to our candidate and so you know we were we were with andrea and we kind of you know this is our mission here is to to increase diversity in congress and so we just kind of kept our head down and then and then HMP decided that they they were going to spend on behalf of this other candidate as well. Um, they ended up putting in a million dollars in television ads in this district. That's not something that ha had ever happened before, not in a Democratic primary. And we are a member-led organization, so the members of Bold Pack are an incredibly, incredibly passionate group of members who really are so passionate about sort of growing the ranks and increasing diversity. And so when they saw this happening, I mean, they, they were Andrea, again, we recruited her to run. This was, this was a candidate that we were just so incredibly invested in. 
in our mission, right? In our, in our task to increase, you know, our ranks in Congress. Um, and so they decided we have, we're here for Andrea. We have to, we have to put our, our, our foot down and kind of our flag down in this race. And so they doubled down. They decided to put in a million dollars. So Bullpack made a million dollar investment in that race, in that primary. That's the biggest in- single investment that Bullpack has ever made in our history was made in that race for Andrea Salinas. And I think it just speaks to the passion and the commitment that our organization has to our mission, to, to really ensuring that we get good Latinos and Latinas to run and that we help them make sure they have the resources to win. And primary day came and on primary day, Andrea had been outspent literally by 12 to one. Um, $12 million came flooding in on behalf of her primary opponent in a primary. It was one of the most expensive primaries of the entire election cycle last, last year. It's an insane amount of money for a primary, you know, but, but we were there with her bold pack and she won, she doubled that opponent's vote share that night. And I think that just speaks to what an amazing voice she is and, and how much voters just really, really connected with her. And it speaks to sort of all, all manner of things. And, and it's really a, a race that we're, we're really proud of at Bold Pack and we're really, really proud of our, our role in helping her get elected. Then she turned around and had a really, really competitive general election. She ran against a self-funder who dumped in a couple million dollars of his own money as well. Um, and, and she won that one too. And now we're really excited. You know, before she won, Oregon had never had a Latino represent it at the federal level. And, you know, now Andrea is doing her, her good work um, in Congress. And we're, we're so proud of the role we played in helping her get there. That was a terrific win. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us, Victoria. Where can listeners find out more about Bold Pack and, and stay connected and up to date on what you all are doing? Yeah, so they can visit our website is boldpack.com, B-O-L-D-P-A-C.com. Please, we would appreciate any support you can offer in helping us diversify Congress. Um, and you can also follow us online. We're on Twitter um, and Instagram at Bold Dems. Great. Um, well, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Joe Sudbay for pinch hitting as a co-host this week and to Victoria McGrory for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks also to our producer, Kara Zelaya and editor Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. (laughs) 